morning, church. If you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, we're going to be uh, starting at verse 6, and we're going to be going through the rest of the chapter. We've got some ground to cover today. I apologize maybe for the length of this, but there was no really good place to stop here. So we're, we're hitting it all, and I'm going to try to do it as directly as I possibly can. Uh, so I'm going to open up with a word of prayer. I'll give a very brief recap of like what happened at the beginning of at the end of 15, and we'll move forward. So I'm actually skipping quite a bit of my intro here, all right, because I love you guys, and I don't want you to hate me on my way out the door for Ukraine. So let's pray together, and we'll dive into God's Word. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to come together and, and sing your praises, to open your Word and hear from you. And Lord, I pray that you would help whatever distractions may be, uh, we, maybe we brought in here with us today, that you would help us to... Uh, push those things aside so that we can hear what you would have for us here in uh, Acts 16. Lord, I pray that we would have the heart of these missionaries who uh, went to unknown places in order to uh, spread your word, and they suffered greatly for it, and yet they counted all of that suffering as worth it uh, to see your name proclaimed, see people come to faith. Uh, so, Lord, I pray that we would have that same heart among us. Well, we love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. All right, so a brief catch-up for anybody who wasn't here last week. Uh, we are into Paul's second missionary journey, uh, and we've had a bit of a staff change because uh, he and Barnabas had a falling out. Uh, I'm not going to go into any more detail than that. We've got the uh, service was posted on Facebook Live, so you can check that out if you missed it last week. Um, so they had a falling out. They're moving forward, so Paul took Silas with him and added Timothy to the roster uh, at the beginning of uh, chapter 16. And here we are in chapter 16, moving forward from bringing uh, Timothy in, and we're going to progress on through the rest of uh, chapter 16. So you're welcome for that, because that cut out almost four minutes from this whole sermon. So um, you can hug, me, hug my neck at the end of this for those four minutes. Uh, so we're going to read uh, chapter 16, beginning in uh, verses uh, 6 to 10. Chapter 16, verses 6 to 10. Um, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They had been forget forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came to Mysia, they tried to go into uh, Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. Passing by... Mysia, they went down to Troas, and during the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So the first thing that I want us to consider is the Trinitarian nature of this Macedonian call. And I don't know if you noticed it as we were passing through, um, but we see different uh, members of the Godhead giving direction to Paul and his crew uh, as they were trying to decide where to go on the next step of this missionary journey. And uh, we see in verse 6 that the Holy Spirit uh, would, or, yeah, verse 6, the Holy Spirit uh, wouldn't let them go into Asia. In verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them go into Mysia. And in verse 10, you see uh, God the Father telling them, hey, it's Macedonia. I want you to go to Macedonia. And so we see the entirety of the Godhead coming together, directing this missionary journey. And one other thing uh, that I wanted to point out uh, comes from verse 10, right? In verse 10, we see the language going from third person to first person, right? Did anybody notice that as we were going through? You've got, they went through the region, they had been forbidden, when they came to Mysia, and it goes on and on, and then in verse 10, it says, after he had seen the vision, we, 
immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So here we are seeing that uh, Luke, Dr. Luke, is now, has now joined the team. So you've got an all-star team here already in, the, in these men. You've got Paul and Silas. Uh, now Timothy has joined, and here we have reason to believe that Luke is now a part of this missionary journey as well. And so as they're getting through all of this stuff with Timothy, uh, Paul and his companions are trying to figure out where this trip is supposed to go after this. And you see them, they try to make their way to Asia, uh, but God wouldn't let them go there on this trip. That's for a different time. They will eventually get there, um, but for now, God had different plans. And so God has those plans for Paul and his companions for this trip, uh, and he's conveying that in ways that we're not privy to. We don't understand why or how uh, they were forbidden to go to Asia. We're not told if it's you know, travel issues or if there's just not a peace in their spirit or if they're actually being spoken to by the Holy Spirit. Uh, somehow, uh, they are being told, I don't want you to go here. I don't want you to go there. Uh, what I want you to do is go to uh, Macedonia. So God is making the plan clear uh, that the missionary team is to start off uh, where they're supposed to start off in one direction and then they go somewhere completely different than where, what they had in their mind. And what struck me as interesting here is that even though they didn't have a clear direction on where they were supposed to travel, uh, even though they were already traveling, they didn't have any idea that they were supposed to go to Macedonia. Right? They're, they're working as they go. They don't really know what direction God would have them to go, and yet they are still serving the Lord in the process, just doing whatever they can until they had a clear direction. Now, how many of you, I don't, I don't know how well you travel, but how many of you would have a problem with just setting out with no real destination in mind? You're just trying different places, trying to see if the door would open to these places, and yet you have no idea where you're going. How many of you sign up for that trip? Legit, like any adventurous people here? All right, one, two, anybody else? No, two adventurous people in this room that was signed up for an open-ended trip to go wherever the Lord would take you. Um, yeah, I wouldn't go either. Like, I'm, I, need, I need an itinerary. I, I'm a little nervous about going to Ukraine because I don't know what to expect when I get there. Right? It's just I bought a one-way ticket to a different country, and I have no idea what's going to happen when I get there. That makes me nervous. I would not have signed up for this mission trip knowing this was what was going to happen. I, but luckily, they also didn't know it, right? So they're just winging it. They've got a strategy for the trip, but God keeps changing their plans. And you're kind of like, this way? And God says, nope. All right, how about here? Nope. What about this one? No, right? I love the Lord. I want to do whatever I can to serve the Lord, but this would drive me crazy. I want to know where I'm going. I want to know what time the plane's going to get there, what time the plane is taking off on my way home. I want to know all of that. But these men signed up for this trip, and even without having clear direction, they still tried to carry on the mission without knowing where they were going. Right? They attempt to go several places, but God wouldn't allow them to go to those places but even without clear direction, they still tried things to see what God would have them to do. Right? The reason that they could travel like this, the reason why they could still move forward even, with, even without having a set destination is, in mind is that no matter where the location is, the directive is still the same. Right? Take the gospel to the nations. Right? So they could literally have walked into any one of those countries and it would have been perfectly fine for them to continue on with the mission because the mission didn't change no matter where they went. Take the gospel to the nations. And so we see them. They're not just sitting around doing nothing, waiting on the Lord to call them to a specific place. And see, in my time in ministry, what I have found in this culture is that people are so consumed 
with this idealistic notion of the will of God. Is this the will of God for my life? Do I go this way or do I go this way? I don't know. And they can become paralyzed at not knowing what the will of God is. Do I take this job or do I take this job? Do I buy this house or do I buy this house? Like, what is the will of God for my life? Right? This has become such a common phenomenon in our culture that author and pastor Kevin DeYoung wrote a book called Just Do Something. Just Do Something. Right? In that book, he writes, too often, God's people tinker around with churches, jobs, and relationships worrying that they haven't found God's perfect will for their lives. Or, even worse, they do absolutely nothing, stuck in a frustrated, frustrated state of paralyzed indecision, waiting, waiting, waiting for clear, unmistakable direction. But God doesn't need to tell us what to do at each fork in the road. He's already revealed His plan for our lives. To love Him with our whole hearts, to obey His Word, and after that, do what you like. Love Him with our whole hearts, obey His Word, and then after that, do whatever you want to. So there might be a specific thing that God wants you to do in your life for your ministry. But He may not have given you that specific direction yet. So what do you do? Well, in the broadest sense, we already know the will of God for all of His people. Right? In Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40, Jesus says, or He says to Jesus, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Then He, being Jesus, said to Him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So if you don't know what God's will is for your life, start here. Start with the two greatest commands. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Everything written in the Old Testament falls into one of these two categories. So if you don't know what to do with your life, start there. And along with this, we have the great commission that Jesus gives to all of his disciples throughout all of human history, which is found in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. It says there, Jesus came near to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we don't need to wait on anything any more specific than this. Right? God's will for your life is to love Him, love your neighbor, and make disciples of all nations. The details about how that's going to happen will come eventually, but no matter where you are, that's what you're supposed to be doing. That's the grand purpose for your life. Everything else just falls into one of those categories. So are you striving to obey these basic commands? Right? I hope each one of us can truly respond that we are doing this in our day-to-day -day lives. We're striving to love God. We're striving to love our neighbor. And we're striving to make disciples of all nations. Right? And with that aspect of obeying God's will set in stone... For each of our lives, we can then make plans and do what we can to execute those plans, right? The itinerary that most of us feel like we need, right? When we've got those as our main headings, we can start filling in the rest of it from there, right? We try to serve God in ways that make sense to us, right? And also in ways that God has designed us and equipped us, right? We all have spiritual gifts that God has given us to help the church and to help the mission of God go forward. We also have natural gifts that he has given us, right? So John here obviously has inherited some musical ability and he uses that musical ability to serve the church, right? I, on the other hand, could not play the right note on a guitar if you glued my fingers to the strings and had him strum it for me. I, I just can't do it. But I have other gifts that I use to serve the church. Right? So we make plans 
to use those gifts, to use the things that we've been equipped with, and we use those to plan to serve the, the church and to reach the lost. And when we have those plans, then we hold them like this. We hold them open-handed before the, before the Lord. Lord, this is what I think you want me to do. This is what you've equipped me to do. What would you have me to do? And we walk through the doors that God opens and we neglect the doors that God closes, but we don't become close-fisted with the itinerary. We let God determine what we do, where we go, where the message is preached based on what He has called us to do, where He has placed us. In Acts 17, it's, we're going to see that He placed us in specific places at specific times so that people could be near the Lord. All right, so we hold all our plans, the ones that we make, however we want to make them, open-handed, and let God change that in whatever way He will. Right? We see there, if you read stories about Christian missionaries, they, they went through this all the time. You've got David Livingston who wanted to go to China, but God led him to Africa instead. You've got William Carey who wanted to go to Polynesia, but God sent him to India. Right? You've got Adoniram Judson who went to uh, India first. He started off there. God allowed him to go there and then moved him from India to Burma. Right? So with all that in mind, we do what God has clearly told us to do. We love him. We love our neighbor. We share the gospel. And then we keep in tune with him so that when the direction changes, when it comes to time to move, when it comes time to get a different job, right? When it comes time to start sports or your education or whatever that looks like for you, when it comes time for that and God says, no, I don't want you to go here, I want you to go here, then we are willing and obedient, to be obedient and change course in order to follow his direction. Right, and this is what Paul and his team are doing in verses 6 through 10. They've been called to preach the gospel to the nations, and they're just seeing what door God will open for that to happen. And eventually we see that God opens the door for Paul and his team to go to Macedonia. We see them heading there in verses 11 to 15, so look at that with me. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, the next day to Neapolis, then from there to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of the district of Macedonia. We stayed in that city for several days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we, were ex where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there, a God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So here, Paul and his team, they've made their way into Macedonia, and they must have been moving pretty fast to make it in the time that they did. One of the commentaries I read said that the trip from Troas to Neapolis was 150 miles and they did that in two days. 150 miles, so that ship must have been scooting, right? The final destination for this leg of their journey was Philippi. As Luke mentioned, Philippi was a Roman colony and a leading city in this district, right? But apparently they didn't have a Jewish synagogue because on the Sabbath day, instead of normally going into the synagogue like they would normally do, the team go outside of the city to a place of prayer that's near the river. Right, while there, they encounter a group of women, one of which was named Lydia. Lydia was from Thyatira and was likely very wealthy because Luke says that she dealt in purple cloth. And purple cloth was extremely expensive. Right? It was often associated with royalty and the business was profitable. So if you're a dealer in purple cloth, like you're bringing in a lot of money. All right, so Lydia was a woman of means. But also, along with being wealthy, Luke says that she was a God-fearer. And this doesn't mean that she was a Christian or even a Jew for that matter. If you'll remember, uh, Luke also mentioned Cornelius back in Acts uh, chapter 10 was also a God-fearer. So this is just someone who's seeking. 
right? They understand that there's a higher power uh, in some way, shape, or form, and they're trying to figure out how to honor that higher power. So maybe we'd call them an, an agnostic uh, in our culture at our time, right? They believe that there's something out there. They're not sure what it is. She's a God-fearer, so she's trying to honor whatever that is. Um, and so in seeking God, in that pursuit, because of Paul and his team being on this journey, she was introduced to Jesus through their teaching, and so she finally gets to meet the God that she was searching for. Right, Luke says that the Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. So this means that God made it possible for Lydia to see Jesus clearly. Right? The Bible is clear that when we are dead in our sin, right, our eyes are veiled to the truth of who Jesus is. Right? We cannot come to Jesus because we don't want to come to Jesus. We don't see him for who he really is. And we don't see ourselves for who we really are. Right? So when Luke says that God opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying, he means that he lifted the veil so that Lydia could truly see Jesus who, for, who she, for who he truly is. And then she could also see herself for who she truly is. A sinner in need of a Savior. Someone that is so lost. Someone that is so destitute in their spiritual bank account that there is no way that they could pay off the debt themselves. That's what she understands about who she is. And without God doing this for us, right, revealing our sinfulness and who Jesus really is, we will always and forever reject Jesus. Now, when God opened Lydia's heart, she saw her sin. She saw the reality that was never apparent to her before this. And because of her new understanding of her sin, she saw the need for a Savior. And when this becomes apparent, when you realize this, the wonderful grace of God becomes apparent and the death and resurrection of Jesus becomes the most beautiful thing in the world to you. The most beautiful thing that you have ever seen. And God opened Lydia's heart to see and understand all of this and she responded by accepting the gift that was offered her through Jesus. He took her sin and she took his righteousness forever and always changed. Luke says that she and her whole household were saved and baptized. Right? That doesn't mean that that is, you know, her salvation is credited to her household. They all heard, they all believed. Right? They were all baptized. But in these verses, we have the first mention of someone being saved on European soil and it didn't happen in a place of worship. It didn't happen in a synagogue or a temple or a proper church in any way, shape, or form. It happened next to a river because someone took the opportunity to share Jesus with a healthy woman or wealthy woman who was hanging out there on the Sabbath. From these verses, we should understand that when the message of the gospel is preached, taught, or shared, God opens hearts. And it's our job to share that message wherever we find the opportunity. Right? We make those opportunities. We do whatever we can to be in a position to be with lost people so that we can share the message of God's beautiful grace. Lydia found the opportunity to share that message after she was saved. She shared that message with her family and servants. And they all came to faith. Now, we can't underestimate the influence that we have on the people around us. God put them around us for a reason. So here, we can assume she shares her faith. But we know that someone shares her faith because her, their faith because her whole household comes to Christ. And after this, she offered Paul and his team the opportunity to stay at her house uh, for the time that they were there on that journey. So because 
of Lydia's generosity and hospitality, her home is going to be the first gathering place for the church in Philippi. Can you imagine having that honor? Like, my house is the first place the church gathered in my city. That's amazing. And Paul is going to use this as his base of operations for the time that he spends doing ministry in Philippi. And as is the case in all the narratives in Acts, we don't get the whole story of everything that goes down in Philippi. Uh, We just get little snapshots of the significant events that Luke and the Holy Spirit thinks that we need to know. But one of those snapshots comes uh, in the rest of the chapter, which is going to involve a possessed slave girl and Paul's interaction with her, which is going to end him up in prison. Right? Let's look at the beginning of that in verse 16. We're going to go through verse 24. Once, as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you a way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed. Turning to the Spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. When her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, These men are seriously disturbing our city. They're Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. So here, Luke introduces us to a young girl who could not have possibly been any different than Lydia. Right, Lydia is a wealthy businesswoman who apparently can do whatever she wants because she has money and means and influence. And yet, this young girl is in double bondage. Right, first of all, she's a slave. And her owners treat her like a piece of property. Second, she's possessed by a demon. A demon who gives her the ability to predict the future. And so this young girl's owners take advantage of her demonic oppression in her life to make a profit off of her ability to tell the future. Luke says that this young girl followed the team for many days declaring that they were men who were proclaiming to them the way of salvation and are servants to the Most High God. And you might think that this would be a good thing if this girl was any good at fortune telling. Now she's making money for her, for her people, so you would assume that she's got some skill at it. So you would think if she says that this is what they are doing, then that might be a good thing. What she was saying about the team is true. And so if she has any status in the city for being accurate, this might seem like good press for Paul and his team. So why did Paul become so annoyed by this? Right? There are a couple of possibilities. The first one is obvious. She's demon-possessed. Right? This isn't how the world is supposed to go. Right? Evil should not have this kind of power over people, especially children. It just shows how seriously broken the world is. So there could have been an annoyance that this situation is happening at all. Paul could be annoyed by the fallen state of it all. It's evidence that evil is real. It's evidence that evil is powerful enough and tangible enough to overcome people's lives. It's not always just demonic influence. Sometimes they have control like they did in this girl's life. They controlled her. So it could have been that. The second possibility is that even though what the girl is saying is true, being associated with the demonically possessed girl who has ties to the occult is not a good thing. 
right? It's not one of those situations where all press is good press, right? What if one day, right, through her influence, she tells people that these men are servants of the Most High God, you should listen to them, and then the next day, she tells people in Philippi that they should sacrifice their children to the demons and they will experience a profitable season, right? Who knows what she'll say next? She's possessed by a demon, that's not the kind of press you want. Right, so there's a game being played here by the forces of evil. Uh, we know that because there is no way that this demon would be trying to help out the kingdom of God. Like, Why is this demon professing the truth about what Paul and his companions are there to do? Right, something's going on here. There's some game afoot here, and Paul and his companions don't want any part of that. And so Paul calls on the name of Jesus and demands that the Spirit come out of the girl, and it came out right away. I mean, we see this amazing power of this evil spirit, but it's nothing compared to the power of Christ. Right, there's obvious power here. Right? If she is making money for these men... It's because she is able to predict the future. Obviously, they're not going to pay her or pay her owners for bad information. So something is going on here. right? It has the power to see into the future. It has the power to know who Paul is and their team and what their purpose is. But it's not more powerful than Christ. And to be clear, Paul is not the one that released this girl from her demonic oppression. Right? As impressive as Paul is, he doesn't have that kind of power outside of Christ. Everything that he does in any supernatural way is done through him by God. Right? Jesus is the one who brought this girl her spiritual freedom. Paul was merely the vessel that Jesus worked through to release her from spiritual bondage. And at this moment, we should rejoice Right? Both at the freedom experienced by this little girl and in realizing that Christ has the ability to do this for everybody. Right? There is no sin, there is no demonic oppression that is too great to save us, that we're, Jesus can't save us from. Right? We can't out-sin the grace of God. And we rejoice in that knowledge as we, like Paul, we wade into the darkness of this world. Right? I hope that each one of us can say that we're doing our part to wade into this darkness, which is all around us, as we attempt to free people from their bondage of sin. And we should rejoice in knowing that any demonic oppression that they might experience or that might come against us, the power of Christ is greater than it all. that's the case what are we afraid of what could possibly come against us that is greater than our God we should rejoice in that but if the people who aren't rejoicing were the girls owners they just realized that their profitable business has now gone under they have no other way to abuse and extort the demonic oppression that this little girl was under because without the demon, the girl can't predict the future. And so they bring Paul and Silas before the chief magistrates and they say they're disturbing the city. Right, the crowd joins in on the attack and without hesitation, the chief magistrates strip off their clothes and they have them beaten with rods and after this, they have them thrown into prison with special orders to have them guarded carefully. And this goes about as well as some of the other imprisonment stories that we've seen in the book of Acts. Paul's a hard guy to keep in prison. Now look at verses 25 to 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and seeing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, Don't harm yourself because we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his household. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away he and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. So here in prison, Paul and Silas, they're praying and they're singing hymns to God even after being beaten violently and thrown into prison. And suddenly God responds by sending an earthquake that opens all the doors to the jail and having everyone's chains fall off. The jailer wakes up, sees this, pulls out his sword in order to kill himself because if these prisoners have gone free, his death by his own hands is going to be much more merciful than what would, he would be facing uh, by the leaders of the city if he let all those prisoners go. I mean, obviously it's not his fault with the earthquake, but you better die trying to keep them in those cells. Right? One way or another, he's not coming out of this thing alive. And so he's pulled out a sword. He's going to stab himself. But to his amazement, the people didn't flee when they had the option to. Paul calls out, says, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And the whole situation is more than the jailer has the ability to understand. And so he runs in, seeing that these people are on a different level. What is going on here? Why wouldn't you leave? So he goes in. And he sees, I mean, he's heard the praying, he's heard the singing. And so at this moment, he runs in and says, what must I do to be saved? There's something different about you people, obviously. What must I do to be like that? And Paul shares the gospel as simply as it comes. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your whole household. So I don't, like if you have a hard time sharing the gospel, I don't understand how much more simple we can have it. It's right here. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Right? We may have to dive a little deeper if people have questions, but as far as the presentation, we don't need any more than that, apparently. Right? So he shares the gospel with this man. He comes to faith. His whole household comes to faith. Again, to be clear, it's not just because he was saved that the household is saved. We have to place individual faith in Christ. And so according to Luke, everyone in his family were saved and baptized. Every one of them. A lot of times if you get the dad, you get the whole family. Right? So all of this is happening. They're still associated with the jail in some way because it says that he took them to his house and set a meal before them. But the next thing we see is that messages come to him from uh, the higher-ups, and they say that they want him to be released, uh, and he he sets them free from, they get set free from the jail. So apparently they either either left and came back, or his house is somehow associated inside the jail. Not real sure how that works. Um, But going on from there, verse 35 to 40, it says, When daylight came, The chief magistrate sent the police to say, release those men. The jailer reported these words to Paul. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released. So come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they beat us in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens, and they threw us in jail. And now, are they going to send us away secretly? Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to appease them, and escorting them from prison, they urged them to leave town. After leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters and departed. So Paul and Silas are to be released. The magistrates, they want them to leave and to never come back. And this is where Paul presents a problem to these magistrates. You see, Paul and Silas are Roman citizens, right? And there's a process for incarcerating Roman citizens that wasn't followed as they were publicly beaten and jailed. And so if Paul and Silas decide to make a big deal of this, everyone that was involved in this is going to be in serious trouble. So Paul points out his citizenship and the magistrates become afraid. So they come to appease them 
and escort them out of prison. Now, as American Christians, we applaud that, right? Because we have rights. And nobody's going to tread on my rights. So we can, we can relate to this. Right? We are rebellious by nature. Right? As humans and as an American. Right? Nobody's going to tell us what to do. Right? Brit Britain? Like, nobody tells us what to do. We do what we want. And we're not going to let anyone step on our rights. So when Paul does this, we inevitably cheer. Right? Right on. You tell the leadership and the authorities that they will not push you around. You show these people that we cannot be messed with. But this isn't the first time that Paul has been thrown into prison. And I'm sure that there were other times that his rights were violated. Right? And he's an expert on the law. So every time that the synagogues come out and oppose him and mistreat him and hit him with rocks, right? I'm sure that there was some way that he could point out, hey, you have violated my rights as a Jew. But yet, this is the first time that he has declared his rights. Why would he do that then? Why would this be the first time? And it's not like Paul to intentionally try to embarrass people, at least not that we've seen. Right? Like I said, we're just getting snapshots. But right here, it looks like he is intentionally attempting to call these men out, right? to have them sort of debase themselves, come down to our level and walk us out of this place. And so why would it change here? Why would it be different here? Well, maybe Paul's sinfulness... Right? We know that he is a sinful person just because he's human. Maybe his sinfulness wanted to see the leadership humbled a little. I mean, that's possible. Right? Very likely could be true. Or, and I think this is a better possibility, or Paul was trying to ensure the safety of the fledgling church that had just began in Philippi. Right? As, as long as it's his safety and the, the safety of his people, he doesn't seem to care that much. He seems willing to lay his own life down. He's willing to lay his own rights down in order that the gospel may go forward, whatever it takes. But here, it seems like he might be establishing a little bit of leverage over the leadership of this city so that the fledgling church would not be persecuted. Right now he's got a little something over these chief uh, magistrates. And so he goes like, you know, hey, remember that time? I see you getting a little out of place here. Remember that time you threw me into prison? And we didn't, we didn't mention that? I mean, we can still mention that. So maybe just leave them alone, mind your business, and let the church be the church. Right? He hadn't done anything wrong. The church likely won't be doing anything wrong either, but he doesn't want them to be persecuted. And so I think that what he's doing here is he's letting, he's gaining a little bit of tactical advantage in the mission, and he's holding on to that so that the church may grow and flourish without being oppressed by the leadership in the city. And it says, after leaving the jail, they go to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters when they departed. And this line here in verse 40 is awesome. It's such a simple little line. But Paul and Silas have the opportunity to stop at the house of Lydia and speak to the church that was not in existence before they got there. Right? In the work that they have done, in everything that they've experienced, the good and the bad, they now have a church, brothers and sisters in Christ, to encourage before they leave. The gospel has moved forward and has been planted in Philippi. Praise the Lord. That's awesome. In such a simple, they went there, they encouraged the brothers and sisters, and they departed. Like it said that simply, but if we look at it for what it is, it's the beauty of Christ going forward into places that it's never been before. God shows us yet again the effectiveness of the gospel. We again get to see his desire to see the nations worshiping him as he changes hearts and brings dead people to life. And he sends people to these places 
where he intends for the kingdom to grow and through the faithful proclamation of his word, the church flourishes. And it's my desire to see God working through our church in the same way. But for him to do that, we have to be faithful to take the message with us as we go. Right? We're at a, a season in our culture where most people aren't going to come here to hear the message. They might after you build relationship with them. But after one invitation, probably not coming here to hear it. Here is the place where you get built up, where you get encouraged, where you get discipled, and then you take the message out there. So like our mission doesn't stop with, with a simple invitation to the church. Most of these people did not come to faith in a house of worship. It required faithful men and women to go forward into the hardship of life, to be beaten and jailed, to put down whatever rights they needed to for the gospel to go forward. And then we see people responding to the truth of the gospel. I want to see God working in our church this way. But we must be faithful to take that message out with us as we go. So I've got three things that I want you to walk away from here with. All right, three main points. Number one, you all have a ministry. Right? It's, it's kind of a misnomer to say that I went into the ministry as the preacher. I have a ministry. This is my ministry. You have a ministry as well. Every person that calls on the Lord as a Christian it has a ministry. You have a ministry that you are to take from this place. Now, let God guide the mission of your ministry. Right? You should be serving. You should be proclaiming the gospel. And you go ever wherever God will take you. Right? Open-handed with my plans so that God can take whatever he has put in me into the places where I can be most effective for the mission. So let God guide the mission. Number two, don't think that just because God calls you somewhere to do something that it's going to be easy. All right, Paul and Silas were clearly called to Macedonia. And when they got there and they proclaimed the gospel, they were beaten and thrown into prison. Right? Difficulty in the mission doesn't mean that God wants you to hang up the mission. Right? A lot of times we have this misconception, wow, this got hard, God must not be in this. Like at what point in the scriptures do you see ease and, and lack of problem with the gospel going forward? The mission is hard. And like Paul, Barnabas, Luke, Jesus, all of them have been really clear that the mission is supposed to be hard. Right? We're fighting against the forces of darkness here. It's not going to be easy. And if it is easy, we're probably doing it wrong. But we're supposed to go and do these things. And when God says, hey, I want you to go here and I want you to suffer for it, then we shouldn't be surprised and hang it up because, well, I didn't realize that wasn't supposed to be hard. Right? Taking the gospel to the lost world is going to be difficult. We should expect that, prepare ourselves for that, and pray our ways through it when the things come. Not hang up our hats and say we don't want to do this anymore. And the last thing that I want to mention is about our rights. Right? Paul exercises his rights here as a Roman citizen. And we're not completely sure about his motivation for why he did this. Uh, but I think we can all agree that it was different from the previous arrests that he's had. Right? So from this, I think we should understand that we don't have to be a doormat in every situation. Right? As American Christians, we do have certain rights, and I think that we should fight for those rights in a God-honoring way and exercise those rights when someone tries to trample those rights. Right? But we must not allow our pursuit of our rights to dishonor Christ. Right? There's a right way and a wrong way to endure. There's a right way and a wrong way to challenge people as they come after our rights. 
as they trample our rights. And if we make ourselves look foolish before a watching world because we're fighting for these rights that Paul most of the time was more than willing to let go of, like we are tarnishing the gospel. When we become brash and arrogant and start beating our chest, like that is not like Christ. So remember, if you are a follower of Christ in this place, you are first and foremost a follower of Jesus and not an American. All right? You might be an American Christian, but you should be a Christian American first. We should be willing to lay down our rights if pursuing them would dishonor Christ. All right? Bring Christ's honor in all that you do. Go forward from this place in pursuit of the lost. Suffer what needs to be suffered. Lay down your rights as you need to. Call on them when you do need to, but do it in a way that honors God. Let's pray together. Father, it is my hope that you would, number one, go before us as we leave this place so that you can prepare hearts for people who need to hear the gospel that I pray you would motivate us to go and share. Help us to be people that are constantly looking for opportunities to tell someone about the beautiful grace that you offer to lost and dying people. And help us to rejoice in seeing people come to faith, people like Lydia, you know, people like the jailer, maybe even people like this servant girl who was released from this uh, demonic oppression. Would help us to see these things and rejoice as we see the kingdom growing. And God, help us to be humble in a way that allows us to, even when we must fight for our rights, we do that in a way that honors you. And Lord, if it would be more beneficial for your kingdom for us to lay those rights down, I pray that we would be willing to do that as an opportunity to profess Jesus and to show that he is more important to us than anything else in this life. Lord, help that mindset permeate the church and influence how we live and how we interact, what we do in person and online. Lord, be with us as we go from this place and serve you. It's in your beautiful name that I pray. Amen.